The morning text for the sermon is found in Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Exodus 4, starting at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either heretofore or since thou hast spoken to thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. My goal this morning is to help us feel more trust in the use of our mouths in this church and in our neighborhoods and in our places of work and recreation. More faith in the God who made the mouth that we might dare to use it in all of our weakness and insufficiency for his glory so that we can deliver people from bondage, both people in this church who need words of liberation spoken to them and people outside the church who are waiting to be saved through our witness. Now, let me give two illustrations why I think a word like this is necessary for us. I remember when I used to sit in the pew and uh, sometimes a sequence of thought would go through my mind like this when I saw a visitor come in. First thought. Oh, thank you, Lord, for bringing a visitor to our church. May they feel at home. May they like our fellowship so much and find so much encouragement here that they'll want to stay and even become a minister to us as we do to them. Second thought. I should walk over there and uh, say hello. And get to know their name and uh, strike up a conversation, make them feel welcome. Third thought. What if they don't appreciate it? What if they want to just keep a low profile and kind of get in and and get out and not talk to anybody? And uh, what if they're members already? And I just haven't met them yet. They go to the other service and they just happen to come to this one this morning. Or maybe they're just relatives that... who go here, their relatives go here, and they're just going to be here one day, and so there's no possibility that they could become a member. And what if, it turns out we don't have anything in common, and then there's that awful, awkward silence, and I don't know what to say. Fourth thought. Oh, there's uh, Clarence Ullman, or Olive Nelson, or Dolores Erickson. uh, They're sitting closer. Lord, put it in the heart. Put in the heart of Olive and Clarence. Make them want to make these people welcome. Amen. Amen. Now, we don't want to be like that. And yet, so many of us are like that. Why? Why do we resist opportunities to use our mouths for other people? 
I think the text tells us why. But one other illustration to show the need for the text before we get there. I think I'm typical, not only in the church, but in my neighborhood to say that it is not easy for me. I'm not very good at striking up conversations with strangers, say with neighbors that you hardly have anything to do with. And yet it seems to me that Christians ought not to be part of or contribute to the fragmentation and isolation that characterizes our neighborhoods in this day and age. We hardly know anybody, it seems. I don't think it's good for us to live among virtual strangers. And so we need to do three things. We need to be more creative in thinking of ways of getting together with our neighbors. And we need, when there's a spontaneous opportunity of conversation that arises, kind of don't walk to the other side of the street or look down and go back to your lawnmower. Take it. And third, We need to dare in those conversations not to be content with conversations about the dome and the tree disease and the new rehab project, but to dare and venture to speak of Jesus. But we're not very good at it. We sort of resist all those kinds of conversations and avoid them if possible. Why? Well, I think there is an answer in this text, and I hope you will follow with me as I walk through God's dealings with Moses here and maybe give you a new angle on a very familiar story. Why did Moses draw back from the commission to go down there and use his mouth to deliver those people? Chapter three, verse eight, God states the purpose that he has in delivering this people Or coming down to Moses, he says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, back up in chapter two, chapter two, verse 24, God's resolve to deliver this people was based on his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It says, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then back down in chapter three, verse six, again, when God identifies himself to Moses, he wants to make sure that Moses knows who he is. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In other words, I want you to know, Moses, that what is at stake here is not merely the happiness of this people. But rather, my word, my oath to the fathers, my covenant is at stake. Therefore, as verse eight says, I'm going to deliver them. It'll be my battle, my glory, my victory. But I have a gift for you, Moses. I'm going to let you be under me. The lead role in this drama of deliverance. Now, don't worry. Remember, verse eight. I have come down to deliver them. Now, to give Moses the benefit of the doubt here, he did eventually learn this lesson. On the other side of the Red Sea, when it was all over, he sings in Genesis 15 a song like this. Moses sings, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. 
This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's the way Moses sang later. But there was a learning process that Moses had to go through. It took him a while to learn, which ought to be an encouragement to us. Let's learn from his slowness. It says in chapter three, verse 11. Moses says, who am I that I should go down to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? God, in comparison to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, I'm nothing. Can a pansy say to an oak tree out of the way, oak tree, let some sun in here on this little pansy patch. Move over, Pharaoh. We're moving. Pansies can't do that, Lord. Now, God perhaps pauses a moment to see if Moses wants to change his mind. And then if we read between the lines, I think we can hear God say something like this. You're right, Moses. I didn't choose you because you were an oak. One of my rules of thumb is that I don't choose many Wise or powerful or genteel people. I like to use what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. I like to use what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So you're absolutely right. Moses, you are a pansy and Pharaoh is an oak. But Moses, what difference does that make? Why should that stop you from going down to say to this oak, move over, we're moving out? Don't you remember verse eight? I have come down to deliver them. So God goes on in verse 12 and says what he always says to people who are poor in spirit and humble and admit that they're pansies. He says, I will be with you, I'm going to fell that oak and throw it into the sea and you're going to walk over on dry land. Pansies that you are. Now, Moses is sort of red faced, I think, after that little interchange with God. And he had tried something that millions of us have tried since. See if you haven't pulled this one on God. In the guise of humility, you have tried to use your own sense of insignificance and weakness as an excuse for not doing something you felt God leading you to do. You said, I'm a pansy. And God's answer to that is always the same. Right. You're a pansy. Wrong. That's no excuse. That's always the approach God takes. Because, he says here, so many words, I'll be with you. I'll help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. I love to do big things through little people. How else will my name be glorified through all the earth and not yours? Now, in verse 13, Moses shows that he's finally on the right track. He's caught on, at least temporarily, 
Moses says, okay, when I go down there to the people, what name for you shall I use? That's right, Moses. Everything hangs on who God is, not who you are. What's God's name, not what is Moses' ability? Now you're on the right track, Moses. Keep it up. And God, in verse 14, answers, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, what does that mean? That little phrase, I am who I am, means at least this. Nobody determines my character for me. Nobody is making me what I am. I am not in the process of becoming. I simply am without beginning, without end. I am not fickle. I do not change. I am never manipulated. Therefore, I can be absolutely counted on. So you tell those people when you say, come on, we're walking out of here. I am has sent me and they'll know that they can trust me. And then. With that ringing in their ears, Moses hears again the promises that follow. What is God going to do? Listen to what God gives to Moses. Verse 17. I promise I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt. Verse 18. The people of Israel will hearken to your voice. Verse 21. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians And when you go, you shall not go empty. Great promises right into Moses ear. By I am who I am. But while God is talking, Moses begins to shake in his sandals. My God, he means what he says. He's going to actually send me down there. He's got the whole thing planned out. Those Egyptian elders or those Israeli elders, they don't know me from Adam. There's no telling what they'll do. They won't believe me. And so he says in chapter four, verse one, Moses answered. But look, God. They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say. The Lord did not appear to you. Now, what a lesson there is here. And I don't mean the lesson of Moses' stubbornness. We all know enough about that firsthand. I mean the lesson of God's patience. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His ways are not our ways. You know what I would have done had I been God and Moses had said that to me? I would have said Weren't you listening? I just told you in verse 18, they will believe you. Are you calling me a liar? But I'm not God, thank goodness. God didn't do that to Moses. Even though that's true, Moses was calling God a liar. Or at least... A bumbler. All unbelief in the promises of God 
says to God, you're a liar or a bumbler. And I'm not sure which is worse. All disobedience, which comes from unbelief, is a vote of no confidence in the almighty. But what does God do? Very unlike the Piper response. He doesn't even scold him. Instead, he gives him a first-hand demonstration of how he's going to work miracles to evidence the truth of Moses' word. He takes the staff of Moses and turns it into a snake. He takes the hand of Moses and makes it leprous and clean again and says, in effect, Moses, your excuse is always the same. It's oriented on your inability. My answer is always the same. Right. You don't have much credibility in Egypt. Wrong. That doesn't matter. I am going to certify your word. They will hearken to your voice. Now, Moses gives one last objection or excuse why he should not go down there to Israel. Why we should not walk across the auditorium and speak to the visitor. Why we shouldn't go up to that person with whom we've worked so many months and have not spoken. And here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 10. Please, Lord, I'm not a man of words, neither formerly nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, but my mouth and my tongue are heavy. Sound familiar? Aren't we all described there at least some of the time? God, some people's tongues are are loose and and lithe and free and, and they can say whatever they mean. And my tongue is heavy like an anvil. And if I try to move it, it gets all tangled up and I never say what I mean. You remember when I tried to propose to Zipporah, my wife, I practiced that speech for three weeks to the sheep. And every time my knees got all knocky and my throat got all choky. That's the way it's always been. Miriam, she always scored higher than I did on those verbal skills tests. Send Miriam. She's good with her mouth. And God says, now, there's an assumption, Moses, in this objection of yours that's not right. Namely, the assumption that God always uses people with special abilities to accomplish his work. And he looks for those people which have the most well-crafted skill. Now, there's some flaws in that assumption. And Moses knows one of them. And he tries to counter it. Verse 10. Let's read it again. Look at what Moses is doing. He's no dummy. In the way he deals with God here, he is a dummy, really, but he thinks he's not. He's sharp. I am not a man of words, he says, either heretofore or since thou hast spoken to me. Moses knows that one of the flaws in the argument that God always uses gifted people is that he doesn't. Sometimes he takes ungifted people and makes them gifted. And so he says, look, now, God. From the time you met me at the burning bush until this very moment, you had plenty of time to make me eloquent. And it hasn't happened yet. 
And therefore, I don't have any reason to believe you'll make me eloquent. And therefore, I'm not the one to sin, right? You're not working on me. I don't feel any more of man of words now than I did back at the burning bush. I am not eloquent. You've got to prove to me ahead of time that I'm going to make it down there in Egypt. Now, we've rehearsed this this leprosy trick and we've rehearsed this rod thing. Now, let's rehearse my line so that I know when I get down there, I won't blow it. And God, in incomparable patience, still isn't able. But rather... To show Moses that it is not blind faith that he's calling for, says to Moses in verse 11, with the last argument, and it is an argument that ends all objections. There are no more when verse 11 is spoken. Moses, the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Or seeing or blind. Is it not I the Lord? Now the first thing that means. Is at least this. Moses. The God to whom you are talking. The God who has made all these promises of success to you. And has promised to go with you and give you a glorious deliverance. He's the creator of the world. He invented the human body with all its parts, mind, will, emotions, body. He thought it all up. He designed it. He knows it. And that's not all. The most amazing thing, the most devastating and the most reassuring thing comes next. Not only did God create the first man, he creates every man exactly the way they are, whether dumb or deaf or seeing or blind. The Bible always holds two things together, which some of us try to separate. God is creator, but he is also the ongoing sovereign sustainer of the world. He initiated this world process and he superintends and controls its ongoing development. You may have heard of deism, the view popular in the 17th and 18th centuries, which viewed God as kind of absentee landlord. He created the world, wound it up like a clock, set it off, stepped aside and let it proceed with its own immutable laws. So if you trip over the box hockey game in the laundry room like I did on Friday and fall down and bruise your elbow and break the bucket of the dehumidifier, you don't look for divine causes and purposes. You just get mad at your wife because she left it there. Right. But if you read the Bible long enough and with an open enough mind, you can't hold that mechanistic machine like view of the universe. You can't. God is the creator. He made man's mouth and God's providence rules over all things. Ultimately, it is God who makes 
a man dumb or deaf or seeing or blind. And here was God's last argument to Moses. God's last removal of Moses' excuse went like this. We paraphrase Moses. If it's not enough to hear me say that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. If it's not enough to hear me say that I will be with you. If it's not enough to see a bush burning and not consumed. If it's not enough to hear me say I will deliver them. If it's not enough to see me make your hand leprous and clean it. If it's not enough to see me turn a rod into a snake and back into a rod again. If that's not enough, then hear this, Moses, I made and I control everything. Now go and I will be with your mouth and I will teach your mouth what it is to say in the moment. No rehearsals, just the promise. And remember, Moses, who it is who promises the world. Is mine. But Moses said, Please, Lord, send somebody else. Put it in the heart of Clarence. Put it in the heart of Olive. God help Dolores to go. Moses doesn't offer any more arguments. He's got no more arguments. He simply refuses. He will not go. Now, why? Why? Remember, every objection that Moses raised, God answered by revealing two things. He revealed promises. I am going to deliver this people. You're going to be part of an act that the people of Israel will celebrate for the rest of their days. You can be the lead man in this deliverance. And two, I am all powerful. I made the mouth. I make everything the way it is. I have power so that nothing can stand in the way of the fulfillment of these promises. Now go. And the only possible explanation for why Moses wouldn't go is what? He didn't believe him. He did not believe God. And God got angry in verse 14. Because finally, in the end, there is no greater insult, is there, that you can pay to God than to say, I don't trust you. You can't be relied on. If you want to insult somebody and break your relationship forever, you just tell them, I just don't think I can count on you. Now, Moses' problem is our problem. Learning to believe God in our everyday lives. That he will work for us and not let us come to ruin. We've got to walk by that faith, and that's the problem with Moses. Where does that faith come from? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the promises of God. 
seeing who God is. Now, I think the God of Exodus three and four merits all our confidence and faith. When I read Exodus three and four, I can't understand why Moses wouldn't go. I just want I want to go. And yet I do have to empathize with Moses because God has urged me to do a lot simpler things than that. And I've used excuses every bit as ridiculous as Moses. But the encouraging thing is that by the time it was over, Moses had learned a great lesson. You remember in Exodus 33, it said God used to speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. Moses had grown so close to God and he had become such a humble and faithful leader that what we ought to see here at the beginning of this leadership is just a learning period and take heart for ourselves. And so let me close with five brief ways to apply this message to our lives. First, number one, let's simply admit that we're pansies. Let's admit that we're not eloquent if we're not eloquent. Let's admit that our tongues and our mouths don't do what we want them to do many times. Admit it. Don't try to conceal it. Second, meditate on the promises of God. And one of those promises is my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul said, did you know that Paul said in Second Corinthians eleven six that one of his weaknesses was that he lacked eloquence and he was made fun of by the Judaizers because he was lousy with his words. Might have been strong in letters, but when Paul spoke, people laughed. And then he went on, nevertheless, to say, for the sake of Christ, therefore, I am content with my weaknesses. Because when I am weak, he is strong. So meditate on the promises of God. Third, ponder who God is in relation to this world. Every time Moses objected, God revealed something about himself especially about his sovereignty at the end. Everything led into that phrase, who made man's mouth? Who makes things the way they are? Now, the doctrine of God's sovereignty creates problems. And none of us has all the answers to those problems. But of this we can be sure. Can we not, from verse 11 of chapter 4, that God intends the teaching of his sovereignty his control to be an encouraging and a practical doctrine, mainly an encouraging and a practical one to inspire faith and embolden obedience. And it does, doesn't it? I mean, what other doctrine is going to rescue you? Suppose you get into a situation this week in which as you survey the circumstances, the natural circumstances that man can see, you conclude if I use my mouth to speak of Christ in this situation, it is going to be total catastrophe. There is no way it could be anything else than a catastrophe. Impossible. What other doctrine is going to make you obey God except the doctrine that God is so powerful and so much in control that he can do something Utterly unheard of. God can do all things and bring out of that situation an unbelievable benefit for you and the people. 
I don't know of any doctrine but the doctrine of God's sovereignty that will make you obey when, as far as you can tell, obedience will mean catastrophe. That's the only doctrine that works for me practically in moments of testing. Fourth, and very briefly, pray always that God will make you sensitive and alert to those occasions when a word may be fitly spoken and grace may be imparted by your tongue to others. And pray as well that you be humble enough and trusting enough so that when the fifth step comes, you'll do it. Namely, in the moment of opportunity, whether in this church or in your neighborhood or at work, give to the winds your fear, hope and be unafraid and use your mouth to kindle cheer, the mouth which God has made. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being patient with Moses. Let us learn that you have been patient with us these many years. And, oh, Christ, might we see your power and your promise in Exodus 3 through 4 to embolden and strengthen us pansies. Not to become oaks, but to do the work you enable us to do so that oaks are felled with pansies who rely on you, that you might get the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.